Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Neil Johnson, founder and CEO of Duke Royalty. I reached out to Neil to be a guest because I thought his 20 years of investment banking experience would make for a fascinating interview. I was not disappointed. Neil is promoted through the ranks of Canaccord Genuity to become the managing director where he opened and led the European office of Canaccord. Neil walked us through this experience and spoke about the differences, even nuances of European versus North American investors. Having seen the power of the royalty model in North America, Neil capitalized on the opportunity to bring this product to the European market, which he did with Duke Royalties. This interview is certainly not meant to be a pitch for Duke Royalties, but it is a fascinating look to hear and to understand how Neil and his team raise money and then deploy that capital into their target deals. As always, there's something new to learn. Now, note that this is an informational interview. It's not meant to be financial advice, strictly for entertainment purposes. I'm not a financial advisor and make no warranties or representations concerning the accuracy or suitability of the information contained in this interview. I recommend that any and all investment decisions be made with the advice of an accredited investment advisor. And before we do get started, I am happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their information in the show notes. Now, on with the show. Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Corey. I'm looking forward to our interview because you've got a lot of experience in the public markets, as well as now within the, the royalty space. And that's a that's an industry and a sector that's really becoming of more interest to me when it comes to how to you know kind of an alternative way to finance deals both in the mining sector and others. But the best way for us to do this is to hand it over to you to get a background. So can you tell us who Neil Johnson is? Well, thank you, thank you, Curry. Where's our, how much time do we have? No, I'm, I'm kidding. The really my interest in in becoming a public company CEO and actually you know, having an investment company was born out of my 20 years of being an investment banker and, and helping entrepreneurs and helping business owners, you know, get the capital they need. So it, that's where I started. And, and this royalty, the public company, we're a public company, but Duke Royalty, really, I saw what was happening in Canada and I took that business model and I, and I went out to Europe with it. But you know, I had to lean on all my relationships that that I had through investment banking to create Duke Royalty, and we've raised money six different times in the in the public markets. So, from my years as a banker, and now my years as a public company CEO, yeah, I do have some experience in in, in raising capital. Yeah, definitely understanding the market. So, I've already got a list of questions that have come to mind, aside from what we prepared in advance, but. I want to understand with Duke Royalty, why you moved into Europe and you're listed on the AIM, as I understand, or the London Stock Exchange. And so what was the purpose for going there and building there? Well, the genesis is that I was working for 20 years at Canaccord Capital and Canaccord Genuity, as it is now. And I was one of the original Canadians that when we bought the firm in the UK, I went over and helped grow that business. And there was only 19 people when I started and nearing 200 when I left. 
And we really created a, a market and, and helped Canadian public companies to access the European markets through dual listing and appealing to European institutions at the time. So we raised about $7 billion for Canadian companies in 10 years that I was there. And uh, so it was a lot of hard work. And as I said, we needed a lot of people, but I got to understand the dynamics of the UK market as different than the Canadian and North American market. And, and so Duke Royalty as an investment company, and we help business owners, you know, or we provide the capital of business owners to either acquire other companies or do management buyouts and things like that. But there was nothing like it in the UK public market. And in 2015, when we started, you know, the European central banks had negative interest rates. So we're sitting here in 2023, and now everyone is, you know, talking about how high the interest rates were. You know, when I started, we provided dividend to our investors. And so that was one of the hooks that I could go out and take an established product from Canada and take it to a new market, which was very deep. I mean, there's there's a lot of capital in, in London from around the world. U.S. is great, but they're very U.S.-centric. And the public markets in, in the U.K. are willing and accepting of small companies. And a hunt less than 100 million pounds, you can be a public company in the U.K. Now, I wouldn't recommend it for every company, but that's, that's part of the difference. And there's... I think it's really interesting your experience there of having you know brought Canaccord to Europe, and and I want to ask questions about that. But it brings me back to memories of you know speaking with individuals about the the early days of Canaccord. I mean, it's a legendary firm for us in Canada, for us in the markets. Peter Brown and the team that he had around him, just wild stories there. So interesting to hear you brought it into Europe, and now I think this is a, a question that our listeners could really leverage to their benefit if they knew this. How do European investors differ from Canadian and North American investors? What are some of the nuances there that you think public companies need to know in, in Canada? You know, Canaccord in Europe is appealed only to institutional investors. So we didn't have retail investors like Canaccord's known in, in Canada, especially back in the heyday of, of the Peter Brown days, you know, we had a lot of retail brokers and retail money. And, and then we got into the institutional capital. You know, when we went to, to Europe, it was completely institutional. So that worked for us when we had, that was part of what I said, you know, that the Canadian market and the UK market are complementary because of that. You can raise large sums of money with small amounts of investors because they're all institutional. So that's how those numbers that, that I talked about, we were able to raise from already public companies. They, so the Europeans, you know, A, they most of the money is for European companies, to be fair. So you can't just go over and, and think that there's going to be a lot of ins, uh, Europeans uh, sending you checks back home sort of thing. So you got to need a reason to be there. You also... They are more value investors than the Americans. And so these nosebleed valuations of tech firms just don't happen in London. And, and right now I know of a few different London and European companies that want to list in, in the U.S. tech companies because of that arbitrage in the valuations. They're more industrial services companies. They definitely know financial services and some of the natural resources, a lot of investors there. If you think about Britain and the history of Britain, right, they are comfortable investing around the world and they're in, in comfortable investing in, in Africa for African company and in Asia and things like that, which Canadian investors simply aren't. So that was the reason why the Canadian, the European office and the London office of Canaccord, that I was the head of investment banking for eight years, you know, we were taking Canadian companies that had this global footprint and listening them in London, and we were we were very successful. Hmm. Interesting. It's uh, you know that nuance of looking at something like the UK 
and in England and how their history has informed their investment habits, if you will, and what they're comfortable with. And you compare that to Canadian institutional retail and, and some of the cultures or cultural norms we have and how it influences our approach. Interesting. Talking about investment banking, 20-some years in that business, that's a grind in itself. And then you made the, the entrepreneurial shift. And I think this is your second public company. What made you take that jump? Well, I've got to tell you, can accord investment banking in the 20 years that I was, was pretty entrepreneurial in itself. You know, we, it wasn't Goldman Sachs. So okay. I say to young investment bankers and, and to young entrepreneurs, you know, you have to spot an opportunity and, and create your own job. And, and Peter Brown was great for this. He was very loyal. We had a very you know, called it Canterport family back when I, you know, in the nineties when I was there, because sons would work with their their fathers who were brokers and and it really was long tenured employees. But it was a growth firm. And so you were able to spot an opportunity, go tell your boss, hey, what do I want to do? I was the first technology analyst back in the early in the mid-90s when Netscape went public and we, we didn't know what to call it. We called it the the World Wide Web and the Information <laughs> superhighway. It wasn't called the internet. So yeah, it had yeah. names. That was. I said, "Hey, I want to do this," and it was technology analysis. And then I moved to banking in 1997 and became the head of technology sector globally for Canaccord. And when I left, so that was already part of me, and I loved Canaccord for that reason. So I mean. People might have this, especially after the global financial crisis, as a negative view of, of investment bankers and, and that industry. But, you know, you got to work with people. And and I was told my young bankers, you know, don't try and be Peter Brown or Tim Hoare, Paul Reynolds, who, you know, are these, you know, the, the CEOs and the leaders of our firm. If you are not like that personality, just be yourself. But you got to know your stuff. You got to know the client. You got to know your own your own skill set and the rules and what they need. And you gotta in you gotta give them a reason to trust you with, you know, their baby, which is their company and how to raise money. And and so be yourself, you know, and your personality. But the reason why people are successful is because they they have the the confidence from experience. And there's no substitute for experience in investment banking. You just gotta you just gotta do it. And that was what Canaccord was great for. And really what I what my career was was built on. I spot, you know, I asked to go over to the UK and and got the job and I jumped from research to investment banking and then we did a lot of things, good things along the way. And so jumping to raising, you know, running my own firm was not a big leap, but I did know that this this sector was all, all the other CEOs were ex investment bankers, so I kind of figured like I do have the skill set to to be a CEO of a royalty. Company. Interesting. I want to get into Duke Royalty and what you're doing there because I think that that's an interesting conversation in itself. But before we go there, I want to pull more advice out of you for what it takes to work with investment bankers. They're key to growing companies. What do you think CEOs, CFOs, and IR pros miss about the relationships with the banks, the sell side, the buy side, like all of this ecosystem? How could, how could others do better? It's a relationship business. So you have to develop the relationship with them. And I think the one word is trust. And because I would say this to a CEO, you have to know the motivations of an investment bank and the people, okay? Because they, they have two masters. They have the institutional portfolio managers that buy their deals. And then the investment bankers of the other master, which are the issuers, i.e. the public companies and the CEOs. So they need to match those two. Of course, as a CEO of a public company, you have to know that, you know, the institutions buy every deal and the CEO is only one deal of, of many that they do. The investment bankers need to develop the relationship with, with the CEOs. And, and that's your, the CEO, that's your first port of call. That's who gives you the insight into the market and your 
and is really your advocate inside the investment bank. But as I said, you need to develop relationships and and have trust built relationship with an investment banker. Don't mistake that with thinking that I'm saying trust the your investment banker and everything that he says. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, you know, don't, don't do that. You know, that's the <laughs> thing you should not do is trust what the investment banker says, every word and everything that he says. Yeah. Because there, there is that that balance between the two masters of the of the investors and the issuers. My point is more they need to to know you as a human being and and your and what you need. And, and then they need to be that advocate inside the company and they need to be able to, to give you the real facts, which is, you know, sometimes for many different reasons, there's, you know, they don't always come up with the whole truth. Why don't I say that? Gotcha. I think about a comment you made earlier about actually Duke Royalty and bringing it into Europe as a product. And the positioning there between a CEO recognizing that effectively their company is a product to the market, to the investors. And would it be safe to say that when building relationship with banks, you've got to understand and listen to what they're trying to tell you and how they want to productize you? Is that some a fair piece of advice? Well, well, I think the number one number one fault and trap that CEOs get into is just going down their spiel of like very detailed. And they can talk for hours about their business, but someone that only has half an hour and has had five meetings already today, you know, you got to boil it down to simplify, keep it simple and be very direct and really encapsulate your company in that elevator pitch. And, And it takes work. You know, the CEO knows their business so well, they can talk for hours. But you need to be able to say what you need to say in a very short period of time and have it come across and land with an investor so he gets it. And that is the number one trap that that CEOs, you know, investors walk away and go, I I don't get it. I don't even get what you do. And and they want to do the detail with without contextualizing it. So that's the product side of it. Like that's just like the here's the bucket, here's what we're talking about. Yeah. You know, it's when you make that point, it's something that I've shared before is that companies need to realize the almost the sales process of, of their product, their deal. And if they can't boil this down to three points that are super memorable, whether it be to an independent retail buyer or to a broker or to the banker that it just top of mind, those three points of why you're special, then you're going to lose them. You're not going to be able to get that interest because there's just so much going on for these buyers. And it's harder than you think it is to boil your pitch down to the essence of it. And I was crap at it, to be honest with you at the very beginning. You know, it was, it was kind of like, I, I'm not a royalty expert. Like I'm the CEO and the leader, but I had... I had my CIO when we started, was the royalty expert. He had started drug royalty in the 1990s in in Toronto and then capital royalties in Houston. It was drug royalties. And so this was his third royalty business. And I was like, oh, good, Jim, you know, Jim Webster, he should come on your show, Corey. It'd be interesting. Gotcha. But having succinct when it's kind of out there, you know, it's not an easy product to explain because of what we do. So we had trouble at the beginning. It was a new product for the European. So there was no other public companies, no gold CEO. I would say I envy their job. It's like, <laughs> you don't have to explain what gold is. You know, it's just got to, right. Yeah. here's where we are in the map. You know, here's our drill results. You know, how much are you taking of my deal? You know, basically, you know, I'd love to have that. But part of the challenge, that's you got to do. What about deals that, stuck out to you in your career? I'm sure you've had some runaway successes, but then also some that have just been absolute dogs, things that you didn't expect. I mean, bank is a unique place for that. What do you remember? What's most memorable when it comes to some of the deals you've done? I guess I would preface this with Canaccord Ethos, which was we were doing things that other people weren't doing. And we were the only Canadian investment bank that was actively listing companies on London. 
And, you know, we kind of came up with that because we bought a small firm in, in London that was feeling to the UK investors and, and the UK guys were saying, when you sell a Canadian deal, you know, you're talking to the guy that has the international fund, which is one tenth of the, of the fund manager that can buy UK equities, right? So if you get a, a million dollar order from him, the guy sitting in the next office, if you had it UK listed, could buy 10 million. Mm. So we, mm. we were like, huh, all right. We like the $10 million number more than the $1 million. How do we get a Canadian company listed over in the UK? And I saw one famous, one famous story was, you know, this is March 2000, where I was just over there for four months. We walked into the London Stock Exchange and we had, we thought we were an investment bank, but it turns out that there was so many different, different regulatory things that you needed that we couldn't list a company on the London Stock Exchange. You had to be an approved sponsor. So, so we were like, hey, we're T-Hort, Canaccord, and we want to list a company from Canada. And that we had, they had like all these old, you can imagine, the, the old Brits, you know, and it's like, oh, it's you. Who are you? you yes. No, no, no. We're the Canadians. We're the Canaccord. And so they were like, oh, well, I think you should go to a sponsor, give them your deal, and then you can raise money. We're like, we're not going to do that. We're the investment yep. bank. You know, like we're not going to give our client away to somebody else. So we had to get our sponsorship and our nominated advisor status, which was the AIM equivalent. So we had to go through all these additional hoops. And of course, that's kind of how the old boy network stays the old boy network in the UK. Sorry, my uh, sorry, everyone in the UK that's listening to this, but that is the truth. So we had to go away, and and someone came up to me at the end of that meeting, Clive Hopewell, and he goes, "Listen, I'm a lawyer that is just seconded to the London Stock Exchange. When I finish my seconding, I'm going to call you, and I'll I'll get you registered." So that's what he did, and and he got a lot of business from us as we ramped that thing up. So that's a preamble. So the first ever dual IPO that we did, YM Biosciences with David Allen, the CEO, was memorable because it had never been done before. And we had a Canadian prospectus and we had this big strip of glue that we put the Canadian prospectus glued to the AIM admission document. And we had two completely separate processes because the lawyers didn't know any of the two banks. So we did two separate processes glued them together wow. and then put that as like the entire facts, you know, information that any investor in the UK or Canada wanted to know. It was in one of those two documents, but they were not synergized at all. And so that, that was by 2001 or maybe two by that time. And and David Allen gave me a, a framed picture of like, it was like how many scars he had from the process that he wanted to let me know how much he would always remember that deal. So I still have it framed in my office. So that was a definitely a memorable one. That's cool. It's a bit of a bit of a tombstone of sorts kind of thing. Yeah, a little memory. Interesting. I mean, I just get so like energized thinking about the history of our capital markets. And you know, when you think about like some of the work Frank Schuster did going down into South America and really taking what is the you know this what was the wild west of our capital markets and, and reaching out to different areas of the world. And it sounds like that's what you did with Canaccord and yeah. the UK. And we did a lot of deals with Franks in that era of the, you know, the, the commodity super cycle started in 2000, 2001 with his endeavor and, and what he was doing there and listed a, a bunch of, bunch of his companies in oil and gas and mining and around the world. And, and then, you know, Bob Cross and, and others along the way were, were clients of ours and clients of mine and friends to this day. Amazing. I promise you, we'll get into Duke royalties and especially because I want you to pitch me on it yeah. so that I can hear the elevator. Oh, I, I <laughs> I'm just going to interrupt our interview here to offer up our free masterclass on investor marketing. If you're interested in learning about the key strategies and tactics for attracting, engaging, and retaining investors, this masterclass is for you. It covers everything you need to know about how to build a successful investor marketing program for your public company. 
If you're a CEO, CFO, or IR pro, be sure to sign up at creativereturn.ca slash masterclass. Your investor marketing program should be an accretive use of capital, so be sure to access it at creativereturn.ca slash masterclass or click the link in the show notes. I'm curious about your thoughts on investor relations now, and especially cross-border, kind of cross-pond investor relations, yeah. how it's changed and what works and what doesn't, if you will. God, you know what? If I knew what worked, you know, I would probably quit my job right now and just do that. That's the freaking truth. I, yeah, <laughs> very true. <laughs> it has changed a lot. I think you got to go where the people are. So that's why kind of social media is working and, you know, the whole Robin Hood thing. And it's just a fascinating it's, it's fascinating. And I don't know if the regulators can keep up with, you know, what's being promoted in that era. God, back in the day, you know, you would hire a newsletter writer and this newsletter writer would, you know, have an email list and how things have changed. I think it's it works differently for different audiences. And I think in Canada, there has been so much of the market be individual retail investors that, you know, CEOs had to pay attention to what worked with that. And you can see the power of the retail with a GameStop and everything else. But I think, unfortunately, those aren't the investors that a CEO needs to cultivate. You can blow your brains out, you can blow your bank account trying to appeal to a bunch of retail investors who make money, you know, like they just want to make money and do something. What I'm trying to do as a CEO and my job for is be a shepherd of capital and to have a return on that capital. And so what I'm focused on doing is to ensure that the people who gave me my capital, and those are the shareholders. So all shareholders, I get it. But you know, those shareholders that, that own my company, I need to produce a return for. Those are my actions. And my stock price at any one time is not a re- direct reflection of my actions. So if a CEO is too focused on, you know, I put out a press release, is my stock up 10%? You know, that's the wrong, you know, that's the wrong energy to put towards what you're trying to do and, yeah. and to spend money against the fact that if I can, if I can get five press releases out there and I want my stock to double, I'm going to put a lot of money into, into promoting my stock. You know, you, I question where the energy is and what the money is, is going towards and the long-term value of that energy and that cash. That's something that I see as well. And I'm always curious about the, men- or the, the thinking of CEOs and management teams who are investing in some IR programs in the sense that they have to think long-term for their business, but they think very, very short-term for their IR program. And it's you can't build a success story overnight. So how are you going to do that with a sustainable IR program, you just expect it to just boom, re-rate you and on your way. I mean, like mm-hmm. it's almost, I've been trying to formulate this and I probably shouldn't do it on air because it's going to be fun <laughs> just to fumble through it, but it's almost as though they're looking for a get rich quick scheme to double their share price. And the amount of money they put out to do it is just shocking. It's their gambling investor dollars. Okay. But here's the thing, because the CEOs don't get rich because the thing doubles. Like, we can't sell. Here is, I think, the genesis of why it's important to a CEO is it depends on the type of company you run. I run, like, I put money out, I get money back, so I pay a dividend, I'm very profitable and things like that. So I don't worry about, like, having to raise capital. But if you're a, you know, a micro cap, and I very big sympathy for mining CEOs that, you know, need a drill program and they need money to have a drill program. And, and there's a hundred different other companies that have drill programs and need capital to do it. And so how does your one company differentiate from the hundred others? You know, I guess that's the inverse of what I said before. I was 
jealous of those guys that you don't have to yeah explain who gold is but great grass is always but clear. yeah but now i'm thinking yeah actually i'm kind of not jealous of them because <laughs> you know there it's a commodity right and that's the reason why the the name is in the name it's like you have a piece of grass but what is your grass different than the other piece of grass and no one really knows and you have to keep your name in that you want to finance at the highest price possible but i kind of you know so i don't know that world you know and i'm not a, a ceo of a gold company you know a lot of people are saying you're kind of nodding their head saying yeah i can see why but you know i guess it's just you know that's the way i look at it and that's why i'm doing what i'm doing and other CEOs have a different pressures. The IR is a is one of the tools that CEOs have to ensure that they're financing and not diluting their shareholders. But it's it's one of those things that it's you never know how good it's going to be, and and it's fraught with with danger. Yeah, sure is. And our second interview was with Gordon Keep. Frank's partner. Okay. And I know you, are, yeah. you know, I sat down for an hour in his office and I left three and a half hours later with two hours of content and the rest of it. He's like, you can't publish that. It just a really, <laughs> really interesting experience. But I did ask him about IR and he's like, there is no silver bullet. He's like, what worked yesterday isn't going to work today. And that's just part of it. And yeah, it was, it was really informative. Now, yeah. Okay. Now let's talk Duke. And I want to talk about the business and the business model, because I think that it's a really interesting way to finance deals, to access non-dilutive capital. But I think it's a un- misunderstood business model to some degree. And you even said that it's, it's difficult to communicate this, especially as a new product to a new market. So give us the rundown on who you are and what that business is. I guess you're going to have to you know, score me as to, you know, all those things that I said I wasn't good at. I hope I'm a little better now. Yeah, let's see it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, first of all, the royalty moniker we was a Canadian thing. Like there was some Alaris royalty, there's diversified royalty, and there's been uh, other royalties. What we do is corporate royalties, and I make the distinction because we're actually doing more. What we've done is we've had the the best bits of those royalties of IP and transferred them to operating companies and industrial companies. And that means that they're long dated, they're linked to revenue. You don't have to pay off the initial capital. It gets repaid, you know, through the life of the royalty. And so those are all the good things that are about the royalty. And Alaris, which is now called Alaris Equity Partners, so they even dropped the royalty name, is because we are not a true royalty. All those things are true that I just said, but we're not a fixed percentage of revenue. So we're more like a a long-term and participating loan for industrial companies, owner-operated, been around for a long period of time. We're looking for private and, you know, private and owner-operated profitable businesses that are in need of capital but the owners do not want to sell their business. That's what we're looking for. We're sector agnostic. We're best used for acquisition capital and management buyouts and also equity restructurings. But, you know, if you have a loan with your Bank of Montreal and you want to kind of get a better rate, you know, don't come knocking on Duke Royalty's door. You know, we're, we're not a bank and we're not the lowest cost but we keep the management in control and, and uh, there's no refinancing risk. So there's, that's the product and its advantages in a nutshell. Interesting. And the, it, am I mistaken in, in thinking that the, the origins of the royalty model came from the resource space? Yes. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Oh, yes. I, am I correct or yeah, not? In the, uh, and yeah, so. Okay. And then it sounds like you mentioned drug royalty. And so that was, was that focused on the drug sector? Pharma? Yeah. Pharma. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And now you've taken over and and are applying it into more industrial companies. Now, if I was a company coming to you as as the management team there, and I'm looking for capital, like you you say, you go to the bank and they're going to have their check boxes and 
if you're in Canada, it goes to Toronto and you got to do that song and dance. What about working with Duke Royalty? What are the things that companies need to know when, when approaching someone like you? Well, yeah, a lot of people are, you know, we compete with all forms of debt. And, but we want to be the senior debt piece, just like the, you know, the chartered banks here in, in Canada and the, the high street banks, as they're called in the UK, your Royal Bank of Scotland or your TD Bank. But those banks are interested in a return and a return, you know, an interest rate and a return of capital. And when you have senior lenders, they will, especially for small business owners, you know, put a lot of restrictions on what you can and cannot do. And they do not want you to break any covenants. So those are very restrictive. And if you do, they're able to ask for their capital back like right away. And, and a bank manager is incentivized to not have any losses. So if he feels like you're breaking covenants and he thinks that there's going to be a loss, you know, that's his bonus out the window. So he's wanting to, you know, restrict you even further. And then you got to refinance that and you got a big problem on your hands. He ultimately can take your company away from you if, if that's what happens. So there's a loss of control. And also, you know, if you said, well, I don't want to deal with banks. I'm going to go to my, my rich uncle, my uncle Bob, and he's going to give me 10 million, but oh, well now he wants a half of all of my company. And I got a you know, and Uncle Bob is now the chairman of my company and I got to report to Uncle Bob and everything, every dollar I make, 50 cents goes to him. And, you know, if I quadruple the value of my business, you know, I just cut all my, all my profits in half. So we sit in the middle of those two things. The good thing about Uncle Bob is that he can't take the company away from, from you. So that's what we promise the, the owner which is, you know, we're not here to be, get our capital back as quickly as possible. And we're a long-term partner, but we are very, you know, minimally dilutive. We will take small equity stakes if warranted. We don't need to, but so there's this hybrid between, you know, your senior lender and, and his motivations or her motivations and your uncle Bob, who you're giving away a bunch of the company to. So we're a long-term partner. You don't, you're off that kind of refinancing treadmill that, that you're on if you're dealing with the bank. And although we are senior secured, you know, we're a debt, we're your banker, but because of the alignment with the interests of the owners, you know, we don't actually ask for our capital back. Now, guess what? If you stop paying us because you have to pay us every month, and that's like a 12% to 14% of the capital that we give you. We want that back. So we're looking, that's why we're looking for profitable companies. We're not going to give you money if you're profitable, if you can't, if you can't pay for it and demonstrate that you can pay for it. But if, if it works, you're giving us less than half of your cash flow, but you're giving us cash every month. Now you decide not to pay. Guess what? We are going to take your company because you've just broken the the agreement. So, of course, we're going to have covenants and and we're going to have events default. But we also are more interested in the long, we're economically interested in the performance of the business. And that's that revenue link. So, there's an an adjustment factor up or down, very small amounts every year. And if you're growing, we're going to grow with you and, and it's a long-term partnership. And if you pay us to term, which is like 30 years, it's kind of like a mortgage, you have paid off the principal. So it's an amortizing loan that you can pay at a cash flow, but the, the control of the buyback timing, i.e., you know, it's not a five-year loan, but if you want to buy us out after five years, that control was with the business owner. And so... You keep control in your business. You keep equity control. You go board control. You take. You just pay us, and you can tell us when you're going to refinance us out, or you sell a business and and it's somebody else's problem. That is the reason why business owners want to deal with Duke Royalty. It's not your uncle Bob that you've just made even richer, and it's not the bank manager who doesn't who doesn't want you to take any other risk because he wants his capital back. And yeah, it's interesting that middle ground there. Now, from a business model, from your perspective, you, 
you know, if, if you're just lending for nothing but an interest rate and return of capital, then you're no different than a bank. But being in that centerpiece, you have the loan, the mortgage of the revenue that's coming in there from the interest, but then also the participation and the revenue on the upside. What are some of the numbers there that you're targeting and looking for returns for Duke? And then that takes me into the business model of Duke Royalty and how you're able to return that capital to shareholders. Yes. So what are some of those numbers in that return look like? Sure. So let's use really easy numbers. If there's a company that it needs $10 million, we'll give them $10 million. And this is the low end of the range, especially these times with interest rates going up. But let's say I'm going to ask for 12% interest, sorry, 12% distribution back to Duke. But that's all in. So that includes the amortization. And if you think about a 30-year loan that is going to be the nominal you know, of this instrument, over 30 years, you're paying back that principal. And so on a straight line basis, simple math is 3.3% per year times 30 is 100. Okay. So 3.3% of that 12% is actually the return principal. The actuarials will say that it's a different way to do it because it's the mortgage calculator. But ultimately, from now until the 30, you're paying off the your principal. Now, so that out of the 12% is less than 10% interest. So so we would say yeah. you want we want a hundred thousand dollars a month. And now that's everything that you you need. Now we're also not going to give a company. $10 million unless they have EBITDA of, of $2.5 million. So they keep $1.3. We're going to take $1.2. That's the $2.5, but they get $10 million. They've really securitized their future cash flows and got $10 million. What do they do with that? As I said, there is an acquisition or a change of control of the company, et cetera, et cetera. So, so we put $10 million in. Now, every year, going back to the math, we want to participate in the in the revenue. That's the kind of the royalty aspect of this, which if uh, their revenue grows and it's top line length, up to 6%, we're going to go 1% each percent up to 6%. And then we're capped. And if they grow 10%, you know, we're only going to increase our rate next year up 6%. And on the downside, the same thing, it's down six. So that $100,000 a month can only change max 106 or the 94. But listen, through COVID, you know, we're long-term partners. We took less. We gave them a break in our rate, which the banker would never do. <laughs> so, so we are economically incentivized with the, and that's the alignment to the owners. Yeah. And yeah, that no kidding. just goes up and down every year. So we don't get a lot of, a lot of these high-flying tech companies that want to take our capital for like, a bridge loan, and then try and get an IPO away in six months or a year. Like that's not my, you know, that used to be my life with, with Canaccord okay. as head of yeah. technology. You know, in my life, boring is the new exciting now, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing what happens as you mature, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, we, so we deal with private business owners and once a year, every year, we look back and see how they did and how we can help. But it means that we're not just their bank manager who's going to say no all the time. We want them to, and they are, they are in charge of their business and we want them to succeed and we're economically succeed because we have to pay that cash yeah. they give us as a dividend to our public shareholders. So, so that's part of the model. Interesting. I, man, I really, I love these conversations. I just, how about recent economic uncertainties? I, we're seeing some stuff that, do you remember back in the day, I always referenced long-term capital management. Do you remember that? It was a hedge fund yeah. that went sideways on, they got on the wrong side of the Russian ruble or something like this. And like, this was in the nineties and it felt like, well, I didn't really pay attention. I was too young, but I read the history like it was like all hell broke loose and there had to be a bailout and all the banks came together. That now seems like a pimple on a rhino's ass. Like it's just, it's inconsequential, something of that size. It feels like it happens every week within the yeah. world right now. So in taking that context, how are you 
working through this volatility, which seems to be almost increased in its momentum. I, uh, I get questions like that a lot. And I have to preface what I say by saying that, you know, I don't see a, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of big numbers. You know, if you are, you have a lot of different businesses and a lot of different lows, you can see, oh, these are degrading. So Ask the, you know, the bank of the Royal Bank of Canada about, you know, what are the big risks? You know, I deal with a small group of business owners who, who run their own businesses. But I think the way I can answer your question is that how do I mitigate risk in, a, in things that I can't control? I think that's the question I was getting after. Yeah. Yeah. So... The biggest thing is that I have permanent capital that I have raised money six different times in a public equity context. And so my shareholders, you know, they don't like, if they're scared, they're needing to, you know, rebalance their portfolios. They can sell my stock every day. It trades every day, hundreds of thousands of shares. And so we're a very liquid stock. People of big investors can get in and out of our stock in a day. They don't need to bug me. So Having a permanent equity base to what we do has been our risk mitigation strategy from day one. We now do have a Fairfax Financial from Watson and Co. as our senior lender. They also have a very similar strategy. They don't want to take a lot of risks and whatnot. And so their loan to value is only a max of 40%. We're actually keeping it even below that so that we don't trip any covenants with them and we're on site. We pay them every month. And, you know, that's the way that's, we have no issues at all with that. So in this world of, of fluctuations, we have insulated ourselves in those ways to, to have a big equity buffer. Mm, okay. Okay. Let's talk about the six capital raises and just perhaps yeah. they're get. I don't know if they're getting easier, but maybe from the first to the last and the most recent what have you learned from that? That you cannot control the markets and no one is bigger than the markets. You know, we've gotten better at explaining our story. We've got a track record now. No one, now people can audit and review our audited financials and see exactly what we're, we do and, and how we've performed through our financials. And we're pretty proud of that. But, but when we started, it was a blank sheet of paper. We had no pro, we had no portfolio. We had a, a relationship with a division of Marsh and McLennan. It's a five hundred Fortune five hundred company. Their management consultancy arm was Oliver Wyman, and Oliver Wyman is very big in its in its own right. McKinsey probably the better known management consultant firm out there. But at the time, we had a worldwide exclusive healthcare royalty agreement with Oliver Wyman, so I needed a kind of a public company to sign this disagreement. And so we did that in 2015 by taking over a, a public company that's listed in the London Stock Exchange. So that's AIM and it's Duke Royalty now, but prior to 2015, it had another name and another life. So 2016, we were going to raise our first institutional raise. We had Oliver Wyman, we had some deals, but we had no track record. And, and I remember on our first kind of fan club roadshow, we were going out to some guys that we wanted to invest in us and saying, we got some deals and, and we're going to come out around June. And someone said, you know, in one of the meetings, is that that vote that's going on? When is that vote? Yeah, that Brexit vote. Yeah, well, no chance of that's going through. But, you know, history says, because Scotland had a referendum. Don't raise money around a referendum, you know, just in the odd case that, yeah, you know, that, wow. that the unthinkable happens. So the unthinkable happened and we had to shelve that raise. Our broker at the time, which remain nameless, told us to, to go private because this was not going to be able to be done for a long time. So, you know, they basically fired us as their client. Not a very good thing for an investment banker to do. I think they might regret that now. But, but I had to go to my friends and I had to go to the people that trusted me that I work with. And I said, listen, this is an investable area. There's a lot of companies that we can look to in the North American context to say they do that. What we do this is the first time it's been done. But, you know, without 
my history with, you know, the people that were inside and outside of Tanaccord in London that have moved on and now we're, we're, we're leading other firms, I, I would not have got this off the ground. And so, you know, I have a lot of steps and a lot of people to thank for, for believing in me and, and trusting that this is, this is something that would work and it has. So you asked about the, the, what I learned the first time. It's like, it's always harder and longer than you think it's going to be in the first time. I was the first race that started in January. We had like a two week road show all lined up that was extended to 10 weeks which was two and a half months of pitching on the road and kind of lowered our sights from what we were hoping to get to what we absolutely needed to get. I had to write a big check. My partner, Charlie Brooks, had to write a big check to get this over the line. But Brookfield came in and I had a couple really solid cornerstone investors. Another one was Giles Hargreaves, that well, well known in Europe. And those guys really provided the foundation with us and with the board writing checks, and then it kind of got some momentum and finally got off wow. the ground. It's never easy. Interesting stories there. And I'm already looking, we're already an hour, Neil. This has gone really fast. And I think if you and I had a, a drink or two, it could keep on going, that's for sure. Yeah. But I just want to ask a couple of final questions. One is just out of curiosity, what kind of books or media you like to consume? Well, you know, I always, I always have a book that's on my bedside table, but you know, I, I never get around to read. There's never a half hour that I have that I'm just like, if I, if I'm reading in bed, it's like two minutes and I'm out like a light. So actually I would tell you the reason why I'm doing this is because I really think the future of podcasting and audio consumption is really good. So, you know, from the news and daily and, and fitness podcasting and just other things you can consume so much if you if you're traveling or on the tube at the subway you i put a podcast in and and it's good if you can concentrate your mind because you don't have to be in front of a screen so you can be on the move so i'd say the insider's guide to finance is exactly what i would recommend (laughs) i did not pay you for that promote but i do appreciate it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you did not. Neil, this but the first year is on you when we do. Right on. Uh, this has been a ton of fun. I'm glad I reached out. Thank you for uh, taking the time. Okay. Thank you, Corey. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.